Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 318, The Nine Years' War. Thank you so much for your response to the Anthony Nolan appeal. At the time of writing, we've over £5,000 worth of donations, which is just way more than I ever imagined. So thank you so much. I will do those walks come hell or come high water. The 19th of July is looking a little bit dicey again at the time of writing, due to a couple of hopefully short-term medical things. So I'm in a bit of a fug, but it will be done. With accompanying Facebook Live videos about things of historical interest, which I have no doubt will blow your collective hive mind. Meanwhile, I have another request. Anthony Nolan, of course, needs as many people to join the stem cell register as they possibly can get. And there is a particular shortage of young men. So if you are in the UK, in good health, and are in the 16 to 30 age bracket, you can apply online, and you might just be the perfect genetic match for a patient with blood cancer who needs your stem cells. 90% of people who are a match actually donate their stem cells in a very similar process to how you give blood. You can find out more and join the stem cell register by signing up online at antonynolan.org forward slash history of England. You could be the person that saves someone's life. Now, podcastly speaking, I think I should be honest with you for once. I fear this episode. I fear its skinny hand. There are some complicated things in the world. The potential for nuclear cold fusion, neuroscience, how the Warwickshire Bears can win two superb victories on the trot and then get crushed by Durham by an innings and 127 runs the very next week. For example, these things are beyond human understanding. But there is another thing beyond human understanding, and this is the mass of lordships and relationships in Ulster in the late 16th century. I know that I will not be able to get which set leaders were due what lands and inheritance when, and then when you overlay the desires of English government to turn Ireland into something like Wiltshire, the brain overheats. I tell you this for three reasons. Firstly, just because a pain shared is a pain doubled. Secondly, because I may get details badly wrong and you're not to shout at me, though you may certainly correct me if I do. And thirdly, just because I'm going to have to cut corners dramatically, else this corner of history will be more confusing than all those Anglo-Saxon names we had a while ago 
and that's a terrifying prospect. So we are gathered here today to consider the last great Irish revolt of the 16th century under the hands of one Hugh O'Neill who became Earl of Tyrone. The Earl is a controversial figure in many ways, or at least there are different ways to interpret his career and his motivations. The most attractive one, in a way, is the image that he would later proclaim to support his endeavours, the champion of Catholicism and Gaelic nationalism. Others were, and are, more cynical. One tradition painted him as an opportunist and a deceiver, and yet another that his actions were dominated by the objective of furthering his power and that of his family, making choices somewhat like Gronje O'Mal we heard about last week, but ending up down a different channel. Or again, a man forced into rebellion despite his best efforts. Let's see what we think at the end of it. Hugh O'Neill was born around 1550, the younger son of one Matthew O'Neill. He was therefore born into the ancient and noble dynasty of the O'Neills. His dad, Matthew, was an heir to the earldom of Tyrone, which had been created for his father, Con O'Neill, by Henry VIII in 1542, under the policy of surrender and regrant. Con had wanted to be made Earl of Ulster, with all the ancient connotations that that name had, but Henry was grumpy with him, so no dice. The earldom of Tyrone is physically slap bang in the middle of Ulster, in the top right of the island. I have put a link to the map on the website if you are interested. So, as a younger son, Hugh O'Neill didn't have much of a look-in to a life of power and glory, although inheritance in the Irish tradition, of course, was very different to English primogeniture. But you will remember that things got a lot worse for the Matthew side of the O'Neill family with the rise to power in Ulster of Shane O'Neill the Proud, who used Gaelic succession rights to gain power, a rather familiar theme. It meant that Hugh slipped further down the list, but when, in 1567, Shane was brought low, then Hugh O'Neill's prospects rose again. And when he became Baron Dungannon, he was again a potential heir to the lordship of O'Neill after a man called Turlo Lunach. Hugh was no stranger to the English and to the court. He was no Gaelic outsider. Although it's not entirely clear how he spent his youth and upbringing, there was a strong tradition of fostering, so he may have spent some time with the O'Hagans and the O'Quins, albeit they were in the Shane O'Neill Supporters Club. From 1556 to 9, he seems to have spent some time in the household of Henry Sidney in Dublin, and then with the Hovedens, an English family in the Irish Midlands, who would remain loyal to Hugh right to the end. Henry Sidney would later claim that he had brought Hugh on from a little boy, then very poor of goods and full feebly befriended. In 1567, Sidney took Hugh to London on the eve of his elevation to his status as Baron Dungannon. Now, given that Hugh's prospects were on the rise at this point, the experience must have been a positive one to young Hugh. But the reasoning from Sidney's point of view was not to be to the liking of the future Hugh. The creation of the Barony of Dungannon was all part of the process of anglicising and centralising Ireland, of creating a nobility with direct loyalty to the crown in the English tradition. So, 
the old O'Neill lordship was to be broken up into smaller lordships of Gaelic and Old and New English, and the Scottish MacDonalds were to be removed from the land that they had colonised in Ulster. It took a while, until 1572, for this strategy to be actively pursued by the Elizabethan government, but it probably only had the status of a stepping stone to greater glories as far as Hugh was concerned. His ambition to succeed to his father's whole lordship of Ulster had been blocked for a while, but Hugh was not downhearted. There is, I am reliably informed, more than one way to skin a cat and more than one way to become master of the whole traditional O'Neill lordship as well. So, while professing and probably believing in loyalty to the crown, Hugh O'Neill set about extending the reach and extent of his effective power that the barony of Dungannon gave him. Now, partly this was by making himself indispensable to the crown. In the 1580s, he supported the English in the vicious struggle of Desmond's Rebellion. He did the same in Ulster. You may remember that the eastern parts of Ulster were targeted for plantation settlement at the expense of the MacDonalds by Thomas Smith and the first Earl of Essex, Robert Devereux, a scheme of particular viciousness and failure even by the desperately low standards of Elizabethan Ireland. Although these crashed and burned, Hugh O'Neill was seen to have provided valuable and loyal support, so much so that Elizabeth advised Essex to use all good means to nourish the Baron of Dungannon's good devotion towards us. Now, given that Westminster had popped Hugh into the good egg category, English politicians watched with relative benevolence as he then extended his power within Ulster, as long as it was at the expense of the McShanes and the current Earl of Tyrone, all of whose power they wished to restrain. Hugh used traditional methods to extend the land under his control, which were not gentle, such as establishing junior seps on the land he desired, supported by his own armed soldiers. And by 1587, O'Neill had indeed officially succeeded to the title of the Earl of Tyrone. As required, he then offered the Crown demonstrations of loyalty, such as sending his Hoveden allies to butcher 150 shipwrecked Spanish seamen from the Armada, which sounds straightforward enough. But one of his reasons for this was that he had already been suspected of harbouring and protecting some Spanish seamen. In this, then, lays an example of a feature of Elizabethan Ireland that violence spread further violence. Hugh O'Neill's methods were no prettier than the extremely ugly English adventurers with whom he had to deal. In 1590, indeed, he was recalled to London and imprisoned for a while for arbitrarily hanging a McShane rival, reputedly stringing him up with his own hands. So as time went by, the attitude towards O'Neill from the English began to move a little. Worries began to circulate that maybe they'd bred a monster here. Plus also, we mustn't forget that while Tyrone, as I shall now call Hugh O'Neill, so remember that, Hugh O'Neill equals Tyrone now, harboured ambitions to become the new leader of the complete lordship of O'Neill with all its ancient authority. And this was not the strategy of the English crown at all, not one little bit. They were, remember, 
intent on centralising administration in an English fashion with an English-style aristocracy, no longer content to allow largely autonomous Gaelic lords to flourish. In 1591, this basic mismatch of intentions between O'Neill and Elizabeth began to emerge into the light of day. Part of the centralising of administration involved the implementation of English common law across the island of Ireland, and therefore assize circuits had been established. In 1591, a commission was established under an English administrator called Henry Bagnall to enforce the assize's conclusions. Well, this didn't suit Tyrone at all, not one little bit, very much getting in the way of his view of the power that he should wield as the traditional Lord of the O'Neill. For now, he managed to get his lands excluded from Bagnall's commission, but it's interesting the very personal way in which he viewed the process and Bagnall's role. He already saw him as an enemy and saw his appointment as submitting him into the hands of someone that he described as a malicious enemy. He did not see the attempt to implement new administrative forms as anything other than an assault on his personal and traditional rights of justice. Part of the issue, then, was that lords like O'Neill occupied two worlds, a Gaelic world and an English one. So observers noted that Tyrone liked to fill Dungannon Castle with English-style furniture. He and his sons wore English-style clothes. But Dungannon itself was a very traditional settlement with Irish-style round huts. And after one visit, the Englishman James Harrington remarked with a general sense of lemon-sucking disapproval how O'Neill was served by beardless boys without shirts. Tyrone's very success was based on his ability to inhabit both of these worlds, the traditions, families, shifting alliances and brutal politics of Ulster, with the world of English custom and equally brutal world of English politics in Ireland. In 1579, for example, Tyrone had suddenly repudiated his marriage to Siobhan O'Donnell so that he could then marry a daughter of Turlo Lunach and become his heir as Earl of Tyrone. Now, although that plan came to nothing, he was to use marriage to try and deal with his new problem, that of Henry Bagnall. Henry Bagnall had a 20-year-old sister called Mabel, and it seemed to Tyrone that a marriage would therefore turn an enemy into an ally. The trouble was, Bagnall had no interest in the proposed marriage between Tyrone and Mabel, so Tyrone eloped with Mabel and got married anyway. The marriage seems to have been troubled, possibly unsurprisingly. Within a year, Mabel was back at her brother's house complaining that Tyrone had affected two other gentlewomen, which I think, I'm pretty sure, is a euphemism. And she was horrified that Tyrone's foster brothers had butchered a disloyal servant in her sight. As political dance moves go, it was therefore more pogo than waltz. Although Mabel seems to have returned to Tyrone's side by the time of her death, her brother never delivered her marriage portion and did most definitely not apply for his Team Tyrone membership card. Essentially, it's difficult to avoid the impression that if Tyrone might happen to die by the sword, he had certainly lived by it. He danced the dance of politics 
to achieve the greatness he desired. A contemporary English description of him from Fine Morrison seems to have the ring of insight. Of mean stature, but of a strong body, able to endure labours, watching and hard fare, being withal industrious and active, valiant, affable, and apt to manage great affairs, and of a high, dissembling, subtle and profound wit, so that as many deemed him born either for the great good or the ill of his country. By 1594, it seems evident that Tyrone was playing both ends against each other, and we should tentatively introduce a new name into the story, one Hugh Rowe O'Donnell, who had been held hostage in Dublin Castle for some time. O'Donnell had been lord in Tyrconnell, a substantial lordship in the northwest of Ulster. In 1592 he escaped, and escaped very probably with the help of Tyrone's money, and he reappeared at home in Tyrconnell. His father abdicated his lordship in his favour, and with Tyrone's secret support, O'Donnell ejected the English sheriffs and carried the fight to Turlo-Lunach, with the result that by 1595 Tyrone was in effective control of the whole O'Neill lordship through O'Donnell. Still, Tyrone had not declared his hand openly, but there is a suspicion that even by this time he might already have been communicating with Philip II of Spain, looking for his military support. Tyrone had essentially set himself a challenging objective. Could he be sovereign in Ulster while retaining the support of the English crown? It would take a little while to find the answer to that question. Because meanwhile, the English were desperate to trust him. And the delay in open warfare owes something to this. They were desperate to believe his protestations of loyalty because, look, they were locked in mortal combat with Europe's greatest empire and just like Philip II, they appeared to be in danger of fighting on multiple fronts. The Dutch Republic, the high seas, France. Please don't tell us we have to fight in Ireland as well. Elizabeth has a well-deserved reputation of being as mean as mouse shit and a war with Tyrone was well down the list of her priorities. In 1594, Tyrone, to all intents, did fight a battle for Elizabeth against the rebel, Maguire, at English urging. But it turned out to be largely theatre, actually, since he'd allowed Maguire to move his cattle before things kicked off. And when Tyrone was ordered by Elizabeth to then try to force O'Donnell to submit, he point-blank refused, citing a lack of reward for earlier help that he'd given. Now, this has some justice, but the attitude it displays in Tyrone is one of a sovereign ruler, not the Queen's faithful servant. In the winter of 1594-5, events forced Tyrone to make a choice. O'Donnell and his allies laid out their terms for peace in Ulster to the Crown. This was essentially a return to the status quo ante. They'd pay a tax to the Crown, a composition, but in return they'd be admitted to the Queen's favour and English officials would be excluded from their lands. So forget that strategy of centralising administration, Gaelic autonomy under vague English lordship. Back please. Unsurprisingly, this was not something the Crown could accept. 
So in February, O'Donnell and his allies seized the fort on the River Blackwater and Henry Bagnall marched with 1,750 men to relieve the besieged English fortress. And at this point, Tyrone himself took the field, and he took the field not on the English side, but on O'Donnell's, declaring before the battle that it should be seen whether the Queen or they should be masters of the field and owners of Ulster. So it was clear what Tyrone hoped his future would be. Bagnall received a thorough military mauling and fled back to Newry. By the 23rd of June, the Irish deputy and council had declared Tyrone a traitor. By September, Tyrone had himself installed as the O'Neill at the traditional inauguration site at Tallyhogue, and the rebellion was on. The tensions had all been too much. The very strategy of the English crown conflicted with Tyrone's view of his future and authority, and it was not just ambition. It was also survival, as he saw it. Just as in Connacht and Monster, English adventurers like Smith, Devereux, Bagnall had caused violence and chaos in Ulster and infringed on Tyrone's authority and lands, trying to carve out many kingdoms for themselves. In a way, no one wanted this conflict, but they'd got it anyway. O'Donnell had already by this stage been in contact with Philip of Spain and Tyrone now added his voice again. Now to get his help, they needed to do more than ask for his help to maintain their status quo, which was essentially the autonomy of Ulster in the interests of a group of Ulster lords and therefore might look relatively low priority to Philip's mind. And so a new strand emerges in the conflict. The process of bigging up the rebellion started with appeals for Catholic toleration and on behalf of the Gaelic nobility of all Ireland. To begin with, nonetheless, Philip was sceptical. But the success of the English raid on Cardiz increased his enthusiasm to cause Elizabeth some real pain. In 1596, arms and ammunition arrived from Philip. In 1596, an expedition was sent, but it was beaten back by the wind. Tyrone and O'Donnell knew that to preserve Ulster's autonomy, force would be required, and Spain's intervention was critical. And though it would be a long time in coming, it was, of course, the nightmare about which the English had been panicking for decades. Meanwhile, the rebels played with the English desperation to avoid a new front, in May 1596, Tyrone actually managed to persuade the Queen to pardon him, while appealing at the same time behind the back to the Irish of Munster and Connacht to rise in revolt, and attacks on the plantation of Munster suggested that his desires were answered. Now, you might wonder what chance the Irish rebels had in this fight, since it has to be said that rebellions against the Tudor state had a very poor performance record, only Mary had managed it, and surely they just lacked the resources and discipline to resist Crown forces if the English were prepared to make a full commitment. Well, certainly, that's what many of the English believed. Lord Burr, in 1597, believed that the Ulstermen simply needed to be confronted. Ironically, though, he was himself forced to abandon a campaign into Ulster that very year, leaving behind him that vulnerable fort at Blackwater to be defended. Well, what was the situation? 
First of all, it's worth noting that the terrain favoured informal forces. It was remote, inaccessible, and it favoured the traditional Irish hit-and-run tactics. For the English, garrisons and forts which had access to the sea could be well supported and maintained, and Tyrone would always struggle to shift them. But inland strong points like this fort at Blackwater, the government forces quickly found really couldn't be maintained. They were isolated in a sea of hostility and incredibly difficult to supply. But also, Tyrone had spent time and money on his fighting capabilities. Traditional Gaelic tactics were based on ambush and raid, hit-and-run stuff, as we said. Where set-piece battles did occur, they tended to be very traditional. Bows and guns would be used to harass the enemy, but the decisive event was a massed charge by opposing forces of infantry who engaged one another with axe and sword. Tyrone was a major innovator, acquiring modern weapons, pike and musket, from various sources, originally Scottish, until that source was snuffed out after James's treaty with Elizabeth from 1586. So, primarily then, from Spain, but also from as far afield as Danzig on one occasion. Traditionally, Irish armies had relied heavily on mercenaries, gallowglasses often from the Scottish Highlands, and then a rising up for specific occasions of the general tenantry. Well, Shane the Proud had started the practice of arming and training the ordinary peasantry, and O'Neill extended this practice using Irish returning from the wars in the Netherlands and Spanish and Irish deserters from the English army. So much so that when Charles Blunt arrived in Ireland, he found an impressive army confronting him. So far from being naked people as before times, that they were generally better armed than we, and knew better the use of their weapons than our men. Tyrone's numbers were substantial as well. In 1595-6, to he seems to have had 4,000 musketeers, 1,000 cavalry and 1,000 pikemen. Cavalry tended to be the weakest part of Gaelic armies, but nonetheless, cavalry were also starting to work in formation, and the English Privy Council reported to their horror that O'Neill's forces were wonderfully altered from their Irish manner of arms and weapons and the use thereof, besides their order and discipline in governing their men. You might ask how Tyrone could maintain such substantial forces and well-equipped forces, and the answer seems to be that the Ulster economy was pretty buoyant at this time with such produce as cattle, hides, tallow, sheepskins, grain and yarn bartered for weapons, managed by the grey merchants or itinerant traders. Above all, the skills of Tyrone himself were critical in keeping together an alliance of O'Donnells and Maguires that had previously been antagonistic to the O'Neills. All of this explains why, in addition to the pressures of war with Spain, the English were so keen to avoid conflict. The English army in Ireland was probably only around 1,500 strong in 1595. Even by March 1598, when the Earl of Ormond would confront the rebels with a more substantial force, the Royal Army only numbered some 6,000 men. Interestingly, the assumption often is that the army was composed of English, 
which is not necessarily true throughout the conflict, just as the Gaelic nobility negotiated their futures between a series of choices, so did ordinary people. English conscripts were often unreliable in fighting in Ireland, prone to desertion, whereas the Irish considered soldiering a good livelihood and usually only deserted if not paid. The Earl of Ormond's army was then composed of about 38% English, 20% Palesmen and 38% Gaelic Irish. Meanwhile, even at this relatively low level, the war was bleeding money, estimated to have cost £300,000 by 1597. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, so the rebellion went through a period of rather reluctant conflict, followed by periodic truces, until things started to escalate in August 1598. The flashpoint was that Blackwater fort in Armagh again, where an English garrison had been established. Remote from the coast, the fort presented enormous problems of maintenance and supply, and by 1598 it was a constant concern to the English. And as now it was besieged by Tyrone, the Irish Privy Council considered withdrawing, but in the end they opted instead for war and attack and Henry Bagnall was equipped with a force of 4,000 foot and 300 horse. At Yellow Ford, as Bagnall attempted to cross and approach the fort, Tyrone attacked, holding a line of hedges and raking Bagnall's column with musket fire. Around 1,300 of Bagnall's army were killed, along with Bagnall himself, and the fort was abandoned. The war was transformed. From a dispute in Ulster, it became general rebellion over much of the island. O'Donnell carried war into Connacht, the plantations in Munster were attacked in October and planters fled or were killed with horrified reports that the meaner sort, the rebellion having overtaken them, were slain, man, woman and child, and such as escaped came all naked to the towns. For a while, Thomond was overrun by a brother of the Earl who rebelled, Raids managed to reach Dublin suburbs. In the Midlands, where conflict had been caused by the Offaly and Leash plantations, conflict erupted between Seps who were in revolt and Seps who had reached accommodation with the Crown. Who could save this terrible situation for the Queen then? Well, of course, her gaze and that of the Privy Council turned to the Earl of Essex and to a massive escalation of the war effort. Essex was to command an army of 16,000 foot and 1,300 horse, an absolutely gargantuan commitment by Elizabethan standards. And it's worth noting that though the military results would fall into the C-minus category, the success of supply for such a big army away from England, an army twice the size of that in the Netherlands, was something of a triumph. Now, Essex was no fool, but he turned out to be a poor military commander. 
Maybe this scale of a task and being over-anxious to succeed quickly spoiled his aim. Rather than tackling the main objective in Ulster, Essex allowed himself to be distracted into relieving sieges and capturing rebel castles in the Midlands, until the Queen sent him angry letters telling him to get on with it. In the process, she rescinded the agreement she'd made with him that he could come back to court and leave operations to a deputy, which will be significant. Stung by his mistress's fury, Essex finally marched north to Ulster, though worth noting he had to override the advice of his Irish lords, such as Ormond, to do so. But by this stage, Essex's army had been reduced in numbers, partly by defeats, such as an expedition by a deputy to support the O'Connor in Sligo, and partly by garrisons to protect the Pale. So, when he finally bit the bullet and left the Pale towards Ulster, he had barely 4,000 men and found that Tyrone had come to meet him with almost double that amount. In September then, Essex found himself invited to parley with Tyrone. No one knows what was said, but rumours spread that Tyrone suggested that he'd help if Essex decided to rebel against the Queen. The actual outcome was a truce. And when the Queen heard that a truce was proposed, she was livid. It appeareth by your journal that you and the traitor spoke half an hour together without anybody's hearing, wherein, though we that trust you with our kingdom are far from mistrusting you with a traitor, yet both for commonness example and your own discharge, we marvel you would carry it no better. Elizabeth knew her man, saying of Tyrone, To trust this traitor upon oath is to trust the devil on his religion. But it was too late. Essex had agreed, and given the odds against him at the end, maybe he was right. But it said nothing for his competence that he was in that position. Realising everything was on the line now, Essex fled for London, where we'll join him in a future episode. So by March 1600, Tyrone was at the head of a general insurrection, almost island-wide. And contemporaries noted that Tyrone himself was now behaving just like a ruler, he makes viceroys, creates earls, bestows baronies, sets up and pulls down. Ineffectively replacing the crown, he needed justification for it, and his rhetoric became more pronounced with a combination of defence of Catholicism for the expiration of heresy, the planting of the Catholic religion, and interestingly, a new brand of Irish nationalism. Gone was the traditional separation of Old English and Gaelic, now there was just one people, rebelling against a foreign prince and misrule. Writing to an Anglo-Irish loyalist in Kildare, he wrote, It is lawful to die in the quarrel and defence of the native soil, and that we Irishmen are exiled and made bond slaves and servitors to a strange and foreign prince. It shouldn't be supposed that Tyrone presided over an island united in opposition to the crown. Towns remained loyal, and without siege engines, Tyrone was incapable of capturing them. His appeals made little impact on most Old English, particularly in the Pale. Even the Catholic clergy were split between those who supported military rebellion and those who separated religion and politics. But much of Ireland was indeed in revolt, 
and Tyrone's progress through Munster in the first weeks of 1600 looked almost like a royal progress. In addition, the arrival of a new king in Spain had once more led to talk of Spanish intervention. Tyrone asked for an invasion of 6,000 men, and Philip III was interested and even started planning, though it became quickly clear that nothing could be achieved until 1601. So, when Charles Blunt, Lord Mountjoy, arrived in 1600 as the new viceroy, he faced a major task. But Mountjoy was more ruthless, focused and an impressive commander than was Essex, and he was a man with a plan. He would strengthen resistance to Tyrone in Munster and Connacht and squeeze him back into Ulster. He would ruthlessly deprive him of support through a scorched earth policy. He'd open up a new front in the north of Ulster, supported and supplied from the sea. The policy had a steady impact and success. Peter Carew re-established control in Munster. Henry Dockra established a base in the ruins of Derry and Mountjoy himself challenged Tyrone from the south of Ulster. But for the moment, it seemed that Tyrone and O'Donnell were equal to the task and they remained confident. Tyrone was confident enough to leave Dockra behind him as he went on a raid into the lands of the loyalist earls of Thomond and Clan Rickard, burning and laying waste to their lands, both as a punishment for their refusal to join the rebellion and maybe to remove enemies for a possible Spanish invasion. While burning and destroying resources were an established tradition in Irish warfare and Tyrone was certainly not averse to practising it himself with great brutality, Mountjoy's use of the tactic was brutal in the extreme and the consequences on ordinary people was horrendous. As they burned corn and slaughtered cattle, Mountjoy's secretary Morrison recorded The common sort of the rebels were driven to unspeakable extremities beyond the record of most histories that I ever did read. Tyrone and O'Donnell's situation had become desperate by 1601 then but in communication with the Spanish, they agreed to hold on and not sue for a treaty because at long last, it seemed that Spanish boots could hit the ground in Ireland. A fleet of 44 ships with about 3,700 soldiers arrived in Ireland under the command of one Juan de la Guía in September 1601. Okay, so this was it. The showdown for which all had been waiting the longed-for support which Tyrone and his allies had been pitching for so long. Now at last, Spain was in Ireland. Now at last, the might of Spain would surely sweep away the English from the soil of Ireland. But for Tyrone, there was a problem, and it was an agonising one too. The Spanish had landed in the wrong place. They'd gone to Kinsale, right in the south, near Cork, now, that had been a reasonable call last year, actually, when Munster had belonged to Tyrone. But those days were long gone, and now Kinsale was a long way from Tyrone's centre of power in the north, in Ulster. Also, they'd wanted more. They'd wanted 6,000 men, not 3,700. But it was inconceivable that they could look this gift horse in the mouth. And so Tyrone and O'Donnell resolved to meet the Spanish. Mountjoy, however, moved even more quickly. 
while keeping the pressure up on Tyrone in Ulster, he had not overcommitted himself. As soon as the news reached him, he marched with 7,000 men to Kinsale and invested the town by November. O'Donnell and Tyrone came by separate routes to Kinsale. Tyrone raided the Pale as he came. He was trying to tempt Mountjoy away to defend the Pale and raise the siege of Kinsale, but Mountjoy was too canny and he wasn't buying it. He stayed right where he was. Eventually combined, Tyrone and O'Donnell had about 5,500 men and they now trapped Mountjoy between Kinsale and the Spanish and their own forces and the English army was in terrible trouble, steadily reducing from disease and lack of supply. Mountjoy was desperate for an engagement as quickly as possible before his army disappeared beneath his feet. And his wish was granted on the 24th of December, when for once the Irish moved first, on the understanding that the Spanish would then sally out from the walls of Kinsale and the English would be crushed twixt hammer and anvil. But again, Mountjoy was too quick. He was able for once to use his cavalry in a formal engagement and Tyrone was defeated before the Spanish could have any impact. Seeing the disaster occurring, nine days later, Aguirre surrendered and he was allowed to sail back to Spain with his men. The deep irony is then that the arrival of the much-dreamt-of Spanish saviour led itself directly to defeat, to a war fought on terms and a situation that favoured the English army, throwing away all of Tyrone's inspired tactics and management. The war as a competitive exercise was then effectively over, though the fighting continued, and Mountjoy piled the pressure on Tyrone, building a ring of forts increasingly close to the centre of his domain. The cost of the war had been enormous in money and men, on the English side, something like 33,000 men had been recruited and although deaths in actual combat were relatively low, it was disease that, as normal, caused chaos. At Kinsale alone, the English are estimated to have lost 6,000 men to disease. In Chester, where much recruiting took place, it was said that it was better to be hanged at home than to die like a dog in Ireland. The cost of it all was extraordinary by Elizabethan standards. Robert Cecil estimated the bill of Tyrone's defeat to run to £2 million, compared to the £255,000 spent suppressing Desmond in 1579-83. to But the most appalling suffering, of course, as always, fell on the ordinary people. Morrison again wrote... No spectacle was more frequent in the ditches of the towns and especially in the wasted countries than to see multitudes of these poor people dead with their mouths all coloured green by eating nettles, docks and all things they could rend up above ground. And yet Tyrone would not submit and despite the suffering his core supporters would not desert him either. O'Donnell went to Spain to plead for more troops and died there in 1602. Tyrone was forced from Dungannon and he ritually smashed the O'Neill's inauguration stone at Tallyhogue. For the first year, negotiations led nowhere but Robert Cecil encouraged Mountjoy to keep the lines of communication open. 
In March 1603, Mountjoy learned that Elizabeth had agreed to offer Tyrone a pardon. Elizabeth herself was now in her final illness and would die on the 24th of March, news of which would soon reach Tyrone. For Mountjoy, this put urgency into discussions, both because the uncertainty might encourage Tyrone to continue fighting, and also because Mountjoy himself was desperate to present himself to his new king, James I. The long and short was that on the 30th of March 1603, Tyrone presented himself at Mellifont, County Louth, kneeling for an hour in submission to the Viceroy. But it was worth it, actually. The terms O'Neill received were outrageously generous. Essentially, his position was returned as his status had been as Earl of Tyrone in 1587. He even persuaded the Crown to confirm the O'Donnells in Tyrconnell. The details were all confirmed in 1603 at the court, where Tyrone himself was received with all honour by James in person. On his way to London, the inhabitants of Wales through which he passed responded rather differently, pelting him with mud and stones. Now then, since I have en passant mentioned the death of Elizabeth, you might expect me to finish there, but not a bit of it. I feel the need to close this chapter with both the end of Hugh O'Neill's story and a summary of what we've heard about Elizabethan Ireland. As far as Hugh was concerned, it took him some time to realise that despite the generosity of his treatment, he had in fact lost. And it also took time for him to realise that he was not prepared to go quietly after all. The next few years were filled with lawsuits and disputes over land, and encroachments on his authorities, the English insisted on continuing what they had begun, the process of extending royal administration as they had elsewhere. Meanwhile, the families of his allies, Tyrconnell and Maguire, were so reduced in circumstance that they began to see the life of Catholic adventurers abroad as rather more attractive than humiliation at home. Tyrone, appeared to remain committed to maintaining his position, though, and he had persuaded King James to rule personally on his various lawsuits. In the light of which, what happened in September 1607 was a little difficult to comprehend. The friendship that left Loch Swilly in County Donegal contained the O'Donnell Earls of Tyrconnell and the Maguires with as many of their families as they could gather. And it also contained... Tyrone himself, and most of his family. The event became known in the 19th century as the Flight of the Earls. Opinion has remained divided on why Tyrone went. Was it a long-planned departure, sickened by his reduced circumstance, or a last-minute impulse on seeing the flight of his allies? Was it forced on him, with the prospect of the inquisitions that would inevitably take place once the flight of the Tyrconnells and Maguires became known. The balance of evidence seems to suggest a rushed departure, and so maybe the news came late and forced him to make a quick decision. Either way, the result was probably a disappointment. They had expected to sail to Madrid, but actually ended up in Normandy, which was, you know, awkward. And they were then given free passage to Spanish Netherlands, which was less awkward, but from there they headed down the Spanish road, still not to Madrid though, because they were all of a sudden a bit of an embarrassment to Philip III, who had made peace with England and was now England's best bud 
as the ways of diplomacy go. So, the Earls ended up in Rome, oddly enough, given accommodation as Philip's pensioners. Tyrone lived out the next nine years of his life in Rome, alternating between letters pleading for a new invasion from the Spanish and a negotiated settlement for his return, along with religious toleration. The English government, meanwhile, saw the departure as something of an opportunity. All those lands were now available for redistribution, and the first intention was to parcel it out in smaller packets for Gaelic and English lords. That's until there was another rebellion. O'Doherty's revolt suggested that there should now be a new run instead at the idea of plantation, which is where we'll leave the story for a future episode. So that, ladies and gentlemen, is Elizabethan Island for you. Not a pretty picture, I'm sure you will agree. Hugh O'Neill's departure has been described as the graveyard of English attempts to assimilate Gaelic lords to become English ones. Tyrone died in Rome, as I said, in 1616. I don't think I can really do justice, actually, to that question of what motivated Tyrone. Was he the champion of Gaelic nationalism and Catholicism that he presented himself to be at one stage of his revolt? Or... Was he an ambitious man who wanted he and his family to assume the ancient sovereignty of the O'Neills and simply couldn't accept an English style of lordship? You can choose. The result of all the Elizabethan violence and mayhem was that for the first time all Ireland came under the administration of the English monarch under an English style administration, controlled but not pacified. The expectation of the English was that the process of assimilating the Gaelic Irish into an English state would now proceed apace. But the prognosis was not good. The events of Elizabethan Ireland had given no confidence that even the rewards of loyalty could materialise in a policy increasingly ruled by new English administrators with precious little space even for Anglo-Irish. And the issue of religion was set to increase division. As to how that goes, we will return at some future unspecified date. I am left with a few traditions of historical writing, but two in particular are worth mentioning, I think. Steve Connolly presents a story in a European context, noting the political brutality and violence of the time, quoting the massacres in the Netherlands in particular, but also the rites of fire and sword that were dispensed in Scotland. His argument was that although without doubt it was a brutal period in Ireland, it was not exceptionally unusual in a war-torn time with different rules. David Edwards, on the other hand, is much more unequivocal. In his view, the prevalence of martial law led to what he describes as an age of atrocity, and although I think both agree that the English objective was to assimilate the Gaelic-Irish into a new state, not to exterminate them, yet Edward argues that many of the rebellions were probably unnecessary, noting how many Gaelic lords, including Tyrone, were prepared initially to work with the Crown, only to find the task impossible due to gross mismanagement on the part of the Crown. And certainly, it seems to me that by any standards, the level of atrocity in Elizabethan Ireland was extreme and excessive and contrary to the basic principles of English law and tradition. However, I am not so convinced with the argument that had only the Crown been more sensitive, the attempt of England to centralise and make England conform to a model of governance based on England and Wales could have been achieved without much bloodshed. 
and I suspect Tyrone's story illustrates that point. The aims of Elizabeth's government was directly at odds with the traditions of Gaelic lordship. Both Tyrone and Elizabeth desperately wanted to avoid conflict, and yet their aims were mutually exclusive, and so they could not. Sadly, Elizabethan mismanagement left a kingdom ruled largely by outsiders, with no stake in the governance of the kingdom for most of its inhabitants, a legacy of mistrust on both sides, and with the added fairy dust of religion to bring additional discord, so the prognosis, as I say, wouldn't be good. But we'll hear about that sometime in the future. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. Next week, I have a treat and a change of pace with a guest episode from Paul Carenza of the British Broadcasting Century podcast. I came across Paul's podcast and enjoyed it immediately. Paul's commentary is upbeat and humorous. He uses original clips really well. But most of all, it reminded me of the great story of technical discovery and a reminder of how incredibly far we've come. Inform, educate and explain all objectives that apply to Paul's podcast. I hope and are confident that you will enjoy it. I then have another week off, so I will return on the 27th of June when we will hear about the nasty 90s, previously known as the Golden Age. There's nothing like a good old difference in historical viewpoint for you. Until then, everyone, thank you very much for all your feedback, for listening and so on, for your reviews and contributions. And thank you for your massive generosity in your donations for Antinolan. I'm really grateful. Good luck and see you all soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.